So here we have a guy in a helmet pouring a shake into a car. And it's a picture of... Wait, actually, this is too weird to start with. We'll get to that later in the show. Instead, let's say you got a direct request from God asking you to do something. But what if he was asking you not to die? It wouldn't even really matter how much you'd want to comply. It's just not something we have control over. But we do get this request in the Bible. Strange. And the strangeness doesn't stop there, because even though the Bible is where a lot of people get their concept of a conscious afterlife from, we also have it telling us that the dead don't know anything. So what does it mean? With the different contexts and the irregular usage we're getting here, what kind of death are we really talking about? Stay tuned. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Swedenborg and Life. Today we're going to be asking the question, why does the Bible say that the dead know nothing? My name is Curtis Childs, and I'm going to be the host with you today. So we're talking about the Bible, and we're talking about the afterlife, and we're used to the idea of the afterlife being a debate of sorts. You get plenty of people who are convinced there is an afterlife, they've had experiences or believe in it. There's other people who are convinced that consciousness can't survive without the physical body, so when the body dies, that's the end of consciousness. So we're used to that being a back and forth there and everybody, people being on different pages, but today we want to look at a particular facet of that debate that's popped up here for us on YouTube. Uh, when sometimes people feel moved to comment on our stuff, and we've gotten a number of comments, and I know other people who've delved into similar topics have gotten these as well, where there are people who are questioning the existence of an afterlife, but they're not saying there's no life after death because there's no, there's not sufficient scientific evidence for it, or the people who recorded these experiences are being facetious, or they're lying to get money, or something like that. These people are saying there's no afterlife, and it's because uh, of the Bible line comes up a lot, the dead know nothing. So there, it says the dead know nothing, so how can you say, how can Swedenborg say that there's a conscious afterlife where people are knowing things, right? It says it right here. So we could go into the Bible, look at the text, and find other passages that seem to indicate the opposite, and try to have like a phrase war saying, no, there is life after death according to the Bible, but it really brings up a bigger question, which is, why does the Bible say stuff like that in the first place? Like, why, is it, why, would you, why would it say the, the dead know nothing? Why, why is it in there? Why, why would there be contradicting passages in there? Why does the Bible talk like it does? And this is something we, we would love to sort out just for that aspect of the conversation, but it's also something, if you're doing a Swedenborg show, which we are, you should be getting into this as well, because this is what Swedenborg started with. He, when he first was publishing his theological works, he had this multi-volume series called Arcana Celestia, now translated Secrets of Heaven, and it was all about going through this confusing symbolic language in the Bible, and explaining what does it mean, why does it mean that, and how does it go from being something obscure to being something relevant and an asset to human existence. So we're going to take a look now, because it could just be that Swedenborg is just saying that. Uh, is there any evidence for it in the Bible itself? And can we, by digging around in there, clear up this conversation? Who, who are the dead? Do they know anything? And what does it mean uh, for us day to day? All right, let's begin in part one. Mm-hmm. 
So the headache, I mean, I'm thinking about Miriam and Webster hanging out, and if they were trying to get a definition for life and for death based on the Bible, that's that's going to give anybody cranial troubles, because the way that they're used, they do not behave in the Bible like life and death behave in all other senses of the terms. And we're going to look at that in specific. There's a very strange command that is in Ezekiel 18 in reference to life and death. God is saying, for I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God, therefore turn and live. So this is a direct command from God, don't die, live. Okay, so think if you saw that and you were a devout reader of the Bible and you decided, I'm going to take this at at face value, literally, and I want to do what God says, how would that play out? Well, we actually happen to have some footage of that very thing happening here, so we're going to show you exactly what that leads to. I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. So there, you've got the command, you want to live it out, but how are you going to stop yourself from dying? How are you going to ensure that you don't die? Well, this is what happens. You end up in a corner with a hockey helmet and a broom trying to shut out all danger from the outside world. But really, even if you went to those extremes, it wouldn't matter. Even if you did everything right, used all the soap in the world, drank the healthiest shakes in the world, drove as slow as you possibly could with as much padding on as you could have, even if you did everything right, you still would die eventually. No matter how many precautions you took, it's a losing battle. So why is God telling us that he doesn't like people who die, that we should turn and live. It's confusing. But that's the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament is a confusing body of work. When we get to the New Testament, you have Jesus Christ. He's much more straightforward and clear and compassionate. Surely, if he talks about death, it's going to be something that we can understand. He'll clear it up for us. Let's take a look. This is from John 6, 48. And he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead right? This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Well, I see two kinds of dead here. The first one, I mean, that could really just mean dead, right? The Israelites ate manna in the wilderness and they died, like everybody dies. But these last two, these yellow ones, he's offering a product that makes it so you can't die, and somehow it's him, and uh, there's no fallout from it. I mean, you never hear in the stories afterwards about people eating that bread and then living forever. Did they just not take him up on it? They said, no, man, I don't, I don't want that bread. I don't care if it makes me live forever. So what, what's he doing? This doesn't, this actually, it's more confusing to me, because he's talking about death and then some other kind of death. Like, there are multiple kinds. 
And it's in the context of him telling us how to live. And there's actually another command talking about what our life should be like that uh, that is similar. Oh, sorry, let me get out of the way. Yikes. Uh, this is back to the Old Testament, but it's, 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 again, telling you how to live and the results. If he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord God. There we go. You wanted to know how to live. That's how you live. So you have to walk in statutes, keep judgments, in, in essence, live a good spiritual kind of life. And that seems straightforward enough, right? So I'm thinking about that poor guy from the skit a minute ago, and maybe he would benefit from hearing this. So let's take a look. What happens when he reads this pretty comforting passage that seems to lay out, this is how you stay alive. If a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord God. It's got to be such a stress relief, because he was before agonizing about how do I stay alive, how do I follow this command, and suddenly God has given him the explanation. This is how you stay alive. Uh, if I was him, probably he will, I would go to the parts in the Bible where people are doing that, where they are just and they are faithful, and, and read about how they didn't die, right? So let's let's watch as he goes and reads about the stories of, of you know, the, the people in the Bible that we could pick out that were the most uh, followed following that command. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So Sarah died, and Kenny Abraham breathed his last, and died, and so Rachel died, and was buried. So Isaac breathed his last, and died, and was It doesn't work. The prescription that God gives doesn't work, because those are the people in the Bible who are the best, most moral people, or at least among them, and they all die just as much as the evil people die. So God is giving you a command, telling you how to do it, but if you do it, it doesn't work. It's confusing. This is not comforting. This is confusing. And now we're going to actually make it worse, because it gets even stranger, the usages of death. We move past the new t- the, the uh, Gospels into the Epistles. This is Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 31. Paul is talking, and he says, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. So if you meet somebody and they say that they died, that's a red flag, right? Because you didn't die because I'm meeting you right now. If somebody says, I die every day, like what color flag is that? This is, what is what's he talking about? How is he going to die every day? Not to mention the story of the prodigal son. Let's go to a famous parable from the Bible. Uh, this is in uh, Luke. Uh, it's not like it suddenly gets easy to understand, because you guys, have you heard this story? It's uh, the the two sons, one goes off, lives prodigally, and then comes back, and this is the other son talking to the father, and the father saying, for this my son was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. The son was never dead. The son was just gone and living a frivolous life and, and blowing all his money, but he wasn't dead. So what, what is this death? I mean, I see death being used in many different 
settings and it seems to have different connotations in each one. So if we're going to go make a whole conversation around the dead know nothing, how do you know what death means there if it's hard to pick out what death even means in all these other passages? And it gets me wondering if there's this much confusion coming out of the text of the Bible, does the Bible help to clear it up? Can you find within the text of the Bible some kind of directional arrow saying this is the general vicinity of the definition of this stuff? Well, I think so, and I think we would probably want to check out Deuteronomy 30. That would be our best bet. Pay attention to this first line here. This is verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. So what are those two doing in pairs there. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commandments, His statutes, and His judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear, and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, then I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. So the second half you could read multiple ways, or the second part, but that beginning part set before you today, life and good, death and and evil. Can we pull out from that a some kind of overarching definition? Is this really the truth about life and death in the Bible? That death is equated with evil and life is equated with good. Not that w- that death is a consequence of evil and life is a consequence of good, but that death is a correspondence with evil and life is a correspondence with good. They are symbolic from each other. Could that be the case? Well, it just so happens that that's exactly what Swedenborg says in his exegesis of the text. Yeah, we circled all the way back around to our buddy Swedenborg. This is from Secrets of Heaven 5407. In the other world, so he's talking about in heaven and hell. In the other world, life means heaven in general and eternal happiness in particular, while death means hell in general and eternal unhappiness there in particular. Many scriptural passages make this plain. So because this is the way it is in the, in the spiritual world, that's the way, why the Bible was written this way. Heaven in general and eternal happiness in particular are called life because the wisdom to see what is good and the insight to see what is true are found there. And these contain life from the Lord, the source of all life. And he goes on to say, hell holds the opposite, though. It holds evil instead of good and falsity instead of truth, and therefore spiritual life that has been snuffed out. As a consequence, one finds comparative death there. And think about that. So death, obviously, is different than we're talking, because you can't be like, oh, I'm pretty dead, but Joey is really dead. This, so it's got to be something more on a sliding scale, because spiritual death is evil and falsity. There you go. Spiritual death is evil and falsity. In a human being, spiritual death is evil intent and the distorted thinking it leads to. Not the cessation of consciousness. Some people will think about death as you're not you're not aware that you're existing anymore in life you are, but there seems to be a different split here where both dead people and alive people spiritually are looking around, are thinking, are feeling, but it's the quality of your thoughts and feelings that really matters. And we're going to look at that now in depth in part two. See you. Yeah, is death always a bad thing? We're going to look into it, but it certainly seemed like a scary thing in the last section. Uh, if you remember, our hero ended up like this 
in the corner, afraid of death. He was afraid because there was this command from God not to die. But in general, don't we all have a fear of death? Aren't we hardwired to avoid physical death? And it makes sense, although it sort of does and sort of doesn't, because we are going to die no matter what, no matter what we do, but yet we cling tenaciously to life. And is there a correspondence in that as well? Meaning, is are we physically so afraid of death because uh, spiritually we understand this. We understand that death is evil and life is good, so our fear of physical death is is like our spirit's fear of evil and falsity. So Swedenborg and the Bible seem to indicate that life equals good and death equals evil, but good is not just a one simple thing. There are actually multiple parts to good. We think of good as loving, being kind, choosing what is right. But Swedenborg also says that there's a knowledge component to goodness as well. There's the truth side of it, and that when we lack true knowledge spiritually, we die. This is Secrets of Heaven 6119. Why does spiritual death result when truth is lacking? Spiritual life consists in activity that follows the lead of truth and consequently in being useful. So to be spiritually alive, we've got to have truth that guides us and use that to do helpful things. People dedicated to spiritual life hunger and long for truth for the sake of their life, that is, for the sake of living by it and so of being useful. The more they can absorb of the truth they need as a guide to usefulness, the more spiritual life they have, because the light of understanding and wisdom they enjoy increases with it. So it's essential to have that understanding. When the truth runs out, when truth runs out then, and it runs out with the arrival of the murky state, symbolized in the word by evening, just meaning when you get into a lower state of mind and you cut, you're cut off from access to the truth, their spiritual life suffers. They encounter times of shadow, which are times of spiritual death, because they do not then remain in the light as I did before, but partly regress into self-absorption. Out of the shadow arises the specter of spiritual death, or damnation. So, if you don't have the truth, the spirit dies. If you, which makes sense. If you don't have any sense of what's going on, there's no way you're going to resist uh, the allure of things that are not good to do. The only reason we're able to have any sort of self-control is because we understand things. I understand I want to eat this whole tub of icing, which I really do, actually. You know, like that Betty Crocker? Like, I could definitely eat one of those. But I can understand this is not going to be good for me in the short term. Like, as I'm going to be done eating it, and in like four or five minutes, I'm going to start to feel the crash. And in the long term, that is not healthy to be putting that stuff in that capacity into your body. That's a stupid, silly example. But for everything, there is this same level of understanding, including how we treat other people, you know, and knowing oh, what I do to them, that's what it would feel like to have it done to me. It shouldn't be done. We need that understanding, and if we don't have it, we die. Much like the body dies without water, spiritual, the spiritual water is truth. So the mind dies, or the, the mind which is a spirit dies without truth. So using that truth is how we make the choices to live or die. You know, we're going back to in Ezekiel, we got this command, choose life, well, how do you do that? It's by knowing, understanding what is the right thing to do, and in crucial moments, which we go through all the time, every time we're faced with like, oh, I should do this, I shouldn't do this, we can make the choice toward life. This is how it would play out in real time. 
Did that guy cut him off intentionally in parking his spot because he was going slow? Did he not notice him? Doesn't matter. Our hero there had a chance to take revenge or have compassion. There is, while revenge might make you feel alive in the moment, I think, oh yeah, I'm getting someone back, this feels good, is actually leading you down the road to death. It's a spiritual tub of Betty Crocker ice icing. Uh, so this this is the choice that we are faced with as well. You you can understand what's the right thing to do. You don't always know, but you know what you think is the right thing in acting on that, acting on your best guess in the situation, because from a good intent, that's choosing life. So when God is commanding, choose life, there are little choices like that that we can make all the time. So there we figured it out. Death is doing doing bad things and believing false things. Life is learning the truth, living by the truth uh, in a loving way, right? So there we did it, except it's not that easy, because what about in Corinthians, remember we talked about Paul saying, I die daily. And he wasn't saying that like, guess what, every day I do something bad. He's He's congratulating himself on it. I mean, this is a positive thing. So how can there be anything positive about death? Well, with correspondences, there's always a positive and a negative, that there's actually uh, death being used as a symbol for something harmful, but also death being used as a symbol for something good, which is really the reverse of it. So let's take a look at this positive sense of death. This is Swedenborg Apocalypse Explained, number 78. This is talking about, uh, in the book of Revelation, John on the Isle of Patmos. See, this is Swedenborg explaining the Bible. This is what he does. Uh, on, in the Isle of Patmos, John sees Jesus falls down at his feet as if dead. As if dead symbolizes, symbolizes the loss of John's own sense of life. This can be seen from the meaning of as if dead as losing a sense of our own life when God is present with us. A self-centered life is what we are born with, which in itself is nothing but evil. So putting yourself ahead of everyone else is not the way to life. It is entirely upside down, looking only to itself and the things of this world, and so turning its back on God and heaven. A life that is not self-centered is what we are led into when we are being regenerated by the Lord. It's not that the self doesn't exist, it's just in the right order. When we come into that life, we look primarily to God and heaven, and only secondarily to ourselves and the things of this world. In Swedenborgianese, that could also be translated as we look primarily to what is good and loving, and only secondarily to the to gratification and the things that, that are just for us. When the Lord is present, this life flows into us. Clearly then, to the degree that this new life flows in, our old life becomes turned the other way up. When the turning happens suddenly, we seem to ourselves to be dead. That is why as if dead here symbolizes the loss of our own sense of life. And that might seem dramatic, but if you think about, if you have something that's really driving you and that this is like the only thing that you like in life, particularly something negative, or it's like a major thing in your life, and suddenly you know you can't have that thing, like, oh, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm in a different state right now and I'm not going to be able to you could feel like like you're a zombie. I've had people talk about who, who are addicted to a particular substance and they couldn't get that substance for a week and it's just like, oh, people live like this, you know? So that, but it's not just something like that. It's It could be any little thing that we find. Maybe our pleasure is in our feeling better than other people. We may not notice it overtly, but just everything is kind of tending towards how am I like subtly cooler than everybody else, or how am I, do I have a better life than everybody else? If you were, t- if that was taken out of you, if, if you'd feel a little bit like, whoa, 
Am I even alive? That's the initial vertigo that we get when we start to make this transition into understanding that there are better things out there, that there are better things that you can be feeding on in this life that will lead you more and more towards this spiritual life. And there's a cool little specific about what exactly death in a positive sense means, and this is, we're going to go back to Apocalypse Explained 899. Death symbolizes resurrection, and therefore the dead symbolize those who rise again into eternal life. This is because death symbolizes hell, and consequently evils and falsities which must die in order for us to receive spiritual life. Not until they are dead and extinct can we possess spiritual life, which is the life meant in the word by life, eternal life, and resurrection. So death is this bad thing, but in those instances it's referring to death is hell, but it's the death of hell in those. You know what I'm talking about? That's just how it is. It, it can be confusing at times, because you're, sometimes it's being used in the positive sense, sometimes it's being used in a negative sense, but how do you traverse those? How do you find out which is which? Ah, you, it's almost like it would be handy if there was like a tool that you could use that would just sort of tell you, like, I don't know, um, like a uh, magnifying glass that you could put over the text, and it would tell you what the meaning was in that context. Well, guess what? This is like fresh out of the Swedenborg Foundation labs. This is actually, see, this is this polycarbonate fiber uh, <laughs> makes it so that when you put this over text in the Bible, it displays the correspondential inner meaning. You want to try it out? This is just going to be putting into use everything we've learned in these first two sections. Let's take a look in part three. <laughs> how do we apply this? How do we take this stuff we've been learning and get it to make not only these passages make sense, but then the concepts behind them and eventually get to our goal of figuring out what does it mean when it says the dead know nothing. So let's try it out. I mean, what do we got to lose? It's like, it can't be that dangerous. So let's look, let's go back and look at some of these passages that we already looked at and were confused by. Let's start with John 6.48. You may remember that we were talking about these verses. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. What, it's cryptic. What does it mean? But remember what we learned about life and death. This actually, this thing has a couple other correspondences packed into it that you'll see here. But let's take a look at this text through it here. All right. Okay. You got to get it right, the right distance. This is not, Swedenborg does not exactly quote this. He never gives a one-to-one internal sense, but this is our approximation of the internal sense based on Swedenborg. This is the delight in good things which come down from heaven so that so people may take it in and be kept out of hell. I am the living goodness which came down from heaven. If people take in this goodness and make it a part of their lives, they will come in to heaven. That Particularly for me, that last line just that makes sense. People take a particular kind of goodness, put it into their lives, they will come into the state of mind, which is called heaven. And all the other correspondences in there as well. So is that, that's practical, that's applicable, that points me in a direction. To me, that's energizing. Like, I get what you're talking about. But let's try, let's try it on the next one, see if we can hold up just as well. Let's go into Ezekiel. We had some confusing stuff there, these commands that you have to stay alive, that sort of thing. For example, that we started with this one, for I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God, therefore turn and live. Seems kind of harsh. Let's take a look and see what, what exactly does it mean 
by that. Is it that we, we disappoint when we die? According to correspondences, I have no pleasure that anyone should live in hell, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn your life around and come into heaven, or however he would say it. But that, to me, in, as a greater indicator of the character of God as well, because that, of yes, God would not want anybody to live in hell. I have no pleasure in that. A lot of people think, or I've heard a lot of, like, God is gets revved up to put people in hell. Like, you did something wrong, and I'm going to really get you for that. Like, I'm, I'm pumped that I get to punish you so hard. God is not does not like it when anybody chooses a life of self-centeredness because of the harm they do to others, but really because of the harm they're doing to themselves. So come on, turn around, come into the state of mind. It's called heaven. Let's stay in Ezekiel, right, if we're we're answering those, because we had this, there's another one that's pretty uh, direct that might be worth just getting this magnifying glass over. This is one we didn't really uh, look at before, the soul who sins shall die. But we did look at sort of the reverse. Is it really, like, look around. Are the meanest people dying the fastest? Is that is that any indicator that, that oh, don't, don't do that, you're going to die? Uh, doesn't seem like it. So what does it mean? Uh, I would take the magnifying glass, get it close. A person who willingly does harm immerses themselves in hell. What, what could make more sense than that? <laughs> Maybe I'm just saying that because I'm so used to the way correspondences work through Swedenborg. But to me, it's like, the, the of course, you immerse yourself in hell when you willingly do harm. That is spiritual death. Spiritual death is not accidentally doing wrong things. It's willingly doing wrong things. We're on a roll. We might as well. Let's get into the New Testament. Let's look at Matthew 10. Remember, we had that before. This is going pretty well. We could we could get through all these passages really quick. So, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. What does it mean? What This is confusing. Is it about martyrdom? Are you supposed to, you know, be killed for the faith? Is that better? Let's take a look. Get the thing in here. Okay. Oops. It's a little bit far away. We get the focus right. Huh. It's not working. Why isn't it working? Well, it's because we talked about these two senses of death. One death being a positive thing, one death being a negative thing. We were looking at death as a negative thing in those other passages, talking about people who are immersing themselves in the hellish mindset. In this sense, death is good. So what we actually got to do is flip this thing around. Yeah, let me just get it out here. Flip it around. All right. People who hang on to self-centered agendas will lose heavenly life. That's the warning. But then, people who give up self-centered agendas for the sake of God and neighborly love, pardon me, will find heaven. That's the good dying. When you let the things in you that dehumanize other people and put your own gratification above their happiness and are willing to treat them like objects to get what you want, when that dies, you find heaven. That's the positive sense. Let's try another one of those. Uh, this is Romans 6. We'll move, move on into the epistles, because there was, there was this line earlier that we're not showing where he, that he's referring to, where he talks about dying to sin. Uh, and here he's saying, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Are you saying that everybody who dies doesn't have evil tendencies anymore? Is that so the best? All you got to do is die, and then that's it. What's it talking about? Again, let's magnify it. Uh, yeah, oh, right here. Uh, you know, I just, oh, sorry, I'm like not very steady getting in there. A person who has riven, uh, risen above their, what we would today call lower ego, has been freed from hell. 
if we allow the Lord to subdue our lower ego or our sense of self-aggrandizement, we will also be filled with the Lord's heavenly love and wisdom. Okay? It's, it's a map. It's a map. This is the way you go. This is what you do. Let's just take a look at one more. Ephesians 2. Uh, just to get us at you, we're trying to jump around, see if this applies all over the place. And he made, he, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Well, what does that say? What, what is this going to have some kind of inner sense? It's way different. It's not, it doesn't change at all. That one is so obvious, even on the surface, is equating death with trespasses and sins. There's, that's a spiritual death. It's just right, it's right there showing above the surface there. What else could be being made alive mean. We're establishing through all this what it is to turn and live, to to do the command of God. Go live, go live. What does that mean? It means choose what is good through what you know to be true. If that is all too theoretical, here's how it would look in real life. Choose life. Yeah, the little things we do. That was his arch enemy who parked in that space. He could have just laughed at him, putting his backpack on upside down. But instead, he decided, I'm going to go help. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. And I'm going to do that. And this is the more people that do that to their fellow human beings, the more life we have in the human race. The more life you feel in yourself, the more we go from being in the chaos of spiritual death into life. Go try it. Go both go try choosing life, but also go try to find out what do these passages about life and death mean, and is there more? We just skimmed the surface of a few here. Are there greater messages about how the how we can be choosing life? Go read the Psalms, whatever whatever speaks to you, uh, and apply this these concepts. Look at the correspondences. Does it make sense? All right, let's wrap up. Let's talk about what we've already done here. Uh, we started. With confusing usage of the terms life and death, we had these commands that you can't complete, as advice that doesn't really seem practical. That's where we started. But in the text itself, and in Swedenborg, we found a way to crack the code so that it goes from abstract to applicable. And in using it, things not only make sense, but they give us the path to treat others better, to really fill ourselves with spiritual life. And if you remember, This was all about this line here in Ephesians, that the dead know nothing. So what does that mean, the dead know nothing? Let's put the magnifying glass on that one with what we know. If you are committed to a self-centered life, sadly, you don't know love, and you don't know truth, and you don't know what you are missing. The dead know nothing, that in the hellish mindset, you don't understand that there's such a better way to be living. Think about yourself in all the times when you've been more or less dead and just, you know, think back maybe when you were a teenager or sometime in your life, you just, you're living for some kind of self-gratification and understanding there's such better stuff out there. And that that's the problem that Swedenborg saw in hell, it was that people were just, lit, had let some kind of passion for what is harmful overcome their human decency, overcome their compassion, and just wreak havoc on everything 
uh, everyone around them. We can do that in our own little ways, so let's work against that. Let's choose life. It's not about whether or not there's an afterlife, it's about how we're in this life right now, because everything that we go on to do in the afterlife is based on the foundation of this life. So let's not know nothing here. Let's know something, and let's continue to grow more and more in knowledge, right? That's what it's about. It's not about arguing if there is a life after death or not. It's about living this life in as much good, as much truth, as much spiritual life as we possibly can. If you would like to experience some spiritual life right now, please like and subscribe. (laughs) That will... wait. Oh, they're all gone. Just kidding. That helps us with YouTube. That gets us out into the conversation, helps other people who may be wondering about this same thing. Why does the Bible say that? Hopefully it's a help to them. If you want to help make this kind of... How many times did I just say help? Man, but helping is spiritual life. If you want to help make this kind of programming possible, we're a nonprofit. We need donations. Here's a little bit about our philosophy. We want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone, anytime they need them. That's why we offer Swedenborg's books as free downloads on Swedenborg.com, and we produce this show and other content on our Off the Left Eye YouTube channel with no paywall or ads. The only way to keep this up, though, is for those of you who like what we're doing and feel comfortable giving to give. If the idea of helping others have easy access to the content we produce feels meaningful to you, please consider supporting this cause with a donation. Give if you can, receive if you need. If we cycle through this way, in the end, everybody wins. All right, let's get to your questions. We asked you to ask them, and you asked them, so let's we'll try to answer them the best that we can. All right, this is the first one. Jade. Why is it not better for God to not to not create those he foresees will ultimately choose evil backslide? Is it not possible? Whoa, that's a good question. I don't know if we've ever gotten that question before. So there's this idea of free will and everybody can choose good or evil. That's what this show has been about. But God, Swedenborg does indicate that God has this sort of foresight that uh, he was, is able to, it's not that he can, t- he can tell, but he's not causing, he can know what people's, pat- like, God is outside of time, so we think we're going along in time, but God already sees the whole life, so the co- core of that question is, if all that's true, and God knows you might go to hell, uh, why doesn't he stop you from existing in the first place to save you the, the trouble of going to hell? I think it rests in the difference between Swedenborg's idea of hell and the traditional idea of hell, which the traditional idea of hell, as as I would broadly straw man it, is, well, not even straw man, some people really are out there saying this, is that it's eternal conscious torment, that you are, like, you get, you're suffering, you're suffering, you're suffering, and that's what's up. Swedenborg is not saying that. While it's a much less, does include bouts of suffering and consequences and these sorts of things, it is a life that does have joy in it, it's a joy in in really bad things, gross stuff. But the people who are there, that's the life that they love. Uh, there, are, Swedenborg has instances of devils or, or whatever you want to call them, evil spirits, people people who had chosen hell, talking to him and saying to him, "Hey, listen, everybody has their own life. We like our life in hell." Really, I think that that our interpretation of the dead know nothing passage we showed at the end. You don't know what you're missing. That's the the real truth of it, because heaven is so much better, uh, yet hell hell doesn't really want to acknowledge that or know that. So I mention all that because 
I think that even though the life of hell is such a falling short of what could be, it's not like, like, it's not a total loss. That God is always trying to work to give you the best joy you can have in those parameters, and even trying to get people in hell to do some helping and participate in some little things that are good, so that somehow it's better. It's better that they exist. And I know that Swedenborg, in some places, seems to be indicating that once you're in hell, you stay in hell, but I don't know, man. God is tricky. What if there is, like, some big recycling program showing up, and eventually that person gets into heaven, or something changes, or the future of heaven and hell is different than we think. So there's got to be some good reason. So I think it would be twofold. One is some kind of potential future for them. The other is that even a life in hell, God is making to be as much a life as it can be, and still trying to give a person whatever positive stuff, whatever joy and happiness they can, because the divine love never ceases. So no matter where where you go, wherever I run from you, as it says, um, God is still there trying to make it something good. So that's a great, great question. Those are my thoughts on it. Okay, let's take a look at the next one. Robin, is there a finite time that people are allowed to live in hell, or is it eternal? Did Swedenborg mention this? Oh, man. I just answered that in my answer to the previous question. Swedenborg says, Swedenborg says hell is forever. I mean, he says that in some places. In some earlier places, he seems to indicate it's not. Um, so I just already talked about that a bit. Um, there are many, but there's hell, hell, but then there's other things like the lower earth that he talks about, which is this sort of like place that's surrounded by hell, but it's not really hell, and people come up out of that all the time. Um, and there's different, there's like the world of spirits that angels go back down to, but then they come back up. So it seems like he's saying your the nature of your character can't change, As I was saying, I think that there may be something more than that that he wasn't allowed to say. I think I already talked about it. So, and and I think that we probably addressed that more in our show on the good thing about hell. That's a show title. Um, But anyway, is that was were those good thoughts on it? Hopefully so. Um, He seems to indicate it's eternal, but I there's I think there's something else going on as well. Okay, let's go to the next one. Jeffrey, what does the Bible mean by the second death? Yes. Shoot. There's a, there's a, there's like specific answers to this. Um, the second death, the, initially it can mean like there's physical death and then there's spiritual death, you know, but I believe also, I was just having a conversation about this a couple months ago, but there's sort of like, there's, you're going into the world, of, I think it's when you die, you go into the world of spirits, but then from there you can die into hell. Uh, and I think that's what it's talking about. I'm going to have to um, advise you to Google second death, or not Google it, but but uh, get to um, newchristianbiblestudy.org is a good Swedenborg search site. Put that in there, second death. We really should have me equipped with some kind of search site here. Anyway, that's a good question. Okay, let's do, let's do our next one. Regine. Regine, the Bible says some of you will not die. Does it mean we will also go directly into the spiritual realm in body form? Um, the Swedenborg takes the setup to be that everybody's physical body dies. Um, there was Jesus Christ who had a, his actually something happened with the physical, that, that somehow that was a connection between the physical and the spiritual, and his physical body became spiritual. We do... 
and this is some fascinating Swedenborg trivia, but we do take something physical with us. He says, he just describes it in an ambiguous way. He says that the outermost, or I mean, the inmost elements of the physical become the outermost elements of the spiritual. Uh, Whatever it is, it would not be like you take your body or your clothes. It would be just something like, I don't know whether it's something you could see with a microscope or not. He he just makes this tantalizing comment about it, but doesn't explain further. Um, I think that everybody goes through the process of shedding the body, and um, but entering your new spiritual body. Swedenborg says your spirit is is not just like a hovering mist that can go out of your body. The spirit is, is animating your whole body, interacting with every part of it. So the spirit is the same form as the body. That spirits are just like people with all the organs and all the limbs and everything like that. So we all have this body form, but it's our spiritual body, which instead of being based on our genetics, is based on our will and our understanding, the kind that we're, we're forming here, as we've been talking about. All right, let's do one more question. Rafi GB, in one segment you said it's easier to go to heaven than to hell if you pay attention, but then Jesus had to die to restore the balance of good and evil. So if it was easier to go to heaven, why didn't the greater numbers of heaven make that unnecessary? There have been varying levels of easiness to get into heaven. Um, And Swedenborg does seem to provide sort of weights on either side. He says he does have a chapter in in his book, I think it's Heaven and Hell, that the title reads, it is not as hard to lead the life of heaven as people people think or or as they expect. Uh, So he gives you that it's just about doing little good things. On the other hand, he does say when Jesus Christ was around that there was this absolute threatening of the spiritual balance. Check out our show, The Spiritual Battles of Jesus Christ, if anyone hasn't, that the human race was very near being destroyed. So there have been events throughout the history of the human race that have shifted the balance, right? So it's not always been the same pole from heaven and the same pole from hell, according to Swedenborg. And actually, even in Swedenborg's day, it had gotten really bad, but then this event was happening that was the, the, the forming of the new church was supposed to pull things back. So it may be that it's easier today, but I don't know if he ever says it's easier to go to heaven than to hell. He says easier to go to heaven than you think. So I, if I said that, maybe I was maybe I was misspeaking there. Um, I, I don't know. And then again, Swedenborg's heaven and hell have layers to them, you know, so going to the outermost layer of heaven, opening up to that is very different than opening all the way to the innermost layer of heaven. He almost indicates that people, like, hadn't for thousands of years opened all the way to the innermost level. Um, so, okay, I th- I feel like I want to leave it there, because he doesn't really spell out exactly... Well, he, he indicates sometimes that there are, that there are more people choosing a negative path, but then the other times seems to indicate that God is predestining everyone to heaven and you have to work against it. So I think it's the answer is probably complex and I have limited information. So there you go. That's that I'm gonna get that on a t-shirt and wear it because that's just how things usually end up because these are great questions. Thanks everybody for joining us. And we hope you're gonna join us next week because next week we're gonna be looking at reincarnation.
And what does Swedenborg have to say about it? Does he think that we come back into this life multiple times? Do you go into an afterlife? Are there similarities? Can they coexist? It's sort of the two great views of the afterlife, I feel like, are a permanent afterlife and a recurring cycle here that may lead up to permanence, but you're coming back and back and back here. So where does Swedenborg fit on that? We're going to check it out next Monday. Hope you can make it. See you then.